Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone. This is Lori LeBay, the um, host of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I hope your weather is wonderful. I'm in Minnesota, and we got dumped on with about a foot of snow this morning, <laughs> so it looks beautiful, but there's a lot of work ahead for us here. I want to welcome you all to the, the program. For those of you that aren't familiar with Alzheimer's Speaks, I'm just going to give you a little background on us so that you have, are a little bit familiar Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based group um, which is all about raising awareness and raising the voice of everyone concerning Alzheimer's disease and dementia in caregiving. We were named the number one influencer on the Internet regarding Alzheimer's by ShareCare and Dr. Oz, and the only way that happened was due to our audiences on our multiple platforms. The radio show just happens to be one platform that we have. We also have Dementia Chats, which is a uh, free webinar that's done twice a month where I interview people with dementia, and you can go ahead and interact with them. I have Alzheimer's Speaks blog. Um, I do speaking and training. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel, um, plus, again, this radio, um, this radio platform where we interview everybody concerning the disease. So today we are going to have someone who is actually living with the disease and been diagnosed, but we've had family and friend care partners with us. We've had business professionals that have uh, different and unique services and products and tools um, to come and talk to help people in the trenches with dementia. We have had people who are biking across the country to raise money musicians, film directors, and even Harvard researchers. Um, so anything is a go. Um, this is not about having all of the answers. This is about finding tools, products, and services to connect you and to help change a perspective that there is life with this disease. You do not have to live as it. We are also rolling out a dementia-friendly campaign, which will allow businesses to leverage all of our various platforms. And we'd love for you to join us if you're interested in learning more about that. Um, please please just contact me either through the radio show or you can always go to our resource directory and our main website that hosts all our platforms at www.alzheimersspeaks.com. Now our channel expert is Rick Phelps, and he I never know for sure if Rick's going to join us or not, Rick is actually diagnosed um, with early onset, and he was diagnosed in June of 2010. He's the founder of Memory People, and if he's able to join us today, he will 
he'll pop in and I'm sure have some comments uh, to join the conversation. But I want you all to know that you as guests are more than welcome to join the conversation as well. And you can do that in a couple of fashions. You can um, use your chat box if you signed in with Facebook and just type in your comments or your question, and when there's a lull in the conversation, I'll pull you in. Otherwise, you can call in live to the show as well, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that is 714-364-4757, and you'll just be asked to push one to get into my waiting room and then you can ask your question live. Today is going to be a really fun show. Um, I'm very excited about our guest today, who is Sandy Halperin, and he is part of the National Early Stage Advisory Team um, with the Alzheimer's Association. Sandy, or his real name is Alexander, was a dentist, and he was diagnosed with early onset um, Alzheimer's disease in 2010 at the age of 60. As a person living with dementia, Sandy has chosen to remain very active in his quest for knowledge, not only for himself um, but, and to help define the disease, but to help others. He's currently in the process of looking for a clinical trial through the Alzheimer's Association Trial Match, which is a free service that helps people locate these clinical trials based on their personal criteria. So it's a very neat um process, and again, it's free. You can do that just through the Alzheimer's Association. As a member of the National um, 2012 Early Stage Advisory Group, Sandy hopes to bring awareness to what he calls the invisible illness or the medical problems that um, may not readily be seen by others, and his goal is really to speak um, on behalf of, of others dealing with cognitive impairment Um, such as Alzheimer's disease, where there's many other types of dementia as well, and to raise awareness. He is living in Tallahassee with his wife, Gail, and he has two daughters, Karen and Lauren, both, um, who are are very active and supportive. So welcome, Sandy. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. I look forward to it. I'm excited for our conversation today, and I and I hope our guests um, take advantage of of your willingness to talk so openly about this disease. I'm going to have you kind of stage things for all of us. Can you give us a little background about yourself? Um, you know, I know you were a dentist, but can you just tell us a little history? Sure, I, I'd be very happy to. First, I want to thank you, Lori, for inviting me to be here. As I said, and. You know, I want to thank you for all of the extraordinary work that you've done in all the work with awareness that you put out there about Alzheimer's disease and early stage, as we're going to be speaking about today. But you've been spectacular as to what you've been doing. And, you know, I also want to thank the early stage advisory team that's at the National Alzheimer's Association for all of their support that they've given to me and to the other nine advisors who, you know, share my role and work tirelessly to do what I'm doing, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And I want to thank all of them also. And obviously, you know, you mentioned my family and how they're behind me as caregivers, which may come up in the conversation today. 
but you, you know, your question specifically was about um, I wrote it down was about me, and I'm I'm currently 63 years old, uh, formerly a practicing, teaching, researching dentist who was also in in some aspects of the dental business, and also worked at the Florida Department of Health. Um, I was diagnosed about three years ago, uh, which would be, um, I was about 60, and it was a, a very interesting experience regarding how I reacted to my diagnosis of having uh, early stage cognitive impairment slash Alzheimer's and, you know, the fact of being put on medications and being told of, you know, what my future life might be like and how I should live my life going forward in some recommendations. But I'll leave it, I mean, at that point, I, I, I'm married, as you mentioned, to my wife, Gail, who's, uh, we're going to be celebrating soon our 39th wedding anniversary. We have two spectacular daughters who are 31 and 33, and I've got three grandchildren, uh, ages two, just over two and three, and uh, 17, and, you know, those are part of, you know, what really gives me the spirit of moving forward in, 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 in living my life, uh, you know, my, my close family and friends uh, who I've got uh, uh, mean so much to me. And having them there with me, you know, living each day is so important to me. I think I've said enough right now, and maybe I, I want to get back back to your question Okay. Can you tell us, um, and thank you for sharing all that with us. I, I appreciate that, and I know our listeners do as well. Can you um, tell us a little bit about what types of signs were you noticing um, that maybe something was wrong? Well, I, I noticed some very distinct signs, and I want people to be aware that there's many, many signs that people may feel of the warning signs that the Alzheimer's Association puts out about what they call the ten warning signs of Alzheimer's, but let me let me let me talk about myself specifically. There I was, a dentist working at the Florida Department of Health, reviewing case files for complaints against dentists that were being brought forth to the Florida Department of Health, and I was also working on dental health policy and reading a lot of materials there. After I would review a case file, there I was sitting there, age fifty-eight, fifty-nine. And I look at a case file for an hour, you know, could be an hour and a half, and write a report on it. And the, the file would be anywhere from 25 pages to 200 pages long. And I would read through and look at the dental x-rays and learn the dentist's name and type it up and write up, you know, as I mentioned, the, the whole file. And I would close the file, and around me were all these attorneys that would work on the cases that I would recommend that would maybe go forth, you know, as being valid cases against potential cases against dentists who may have committed some negligence of some sort. Uh, I forgot where I was going now with um, this, this question. Oh, I, I was just asking about, about signs. Oh, and yes, that's right. So, so I would close the case file. And the dentist would walk in, the dentist, the attorney would walk into my office and ask, what, can you, can you tell me about the case? I'd like to go over it with you. 
and almost within a minute or two after closing the case file, I didn't remember anything about my about the case. I didn't know if it was a restorative case, uh, an oral surgery case, an endodontic case. I didn't remember the names of the dentists involved. I knew nothing. So initially, and this is the only time I did this, I covered for myself, and I said, well, wait a minute. Um, would you mind if I come into your office and I'll talk to you about it there? So I would then quickly open up the case file, look at it, and familiarize myself with it very, you know, with the case file open and go into their office with the file open and review it with them right in front of me. And those were the first things I noticed at work. And at home I started noticing when I was playing games with my family and friends, uh, routine games that, you know, you typically play. And I wouldn't remember, even though I played them my whole life, and I even played them recently with them, I didn't remember the rules. And I noticed that when questions were being asked, as is typical in the game of, you know, whether it's a Trivial Pursuit kind of game or other kind of games like that, I didn't recall things that I normally would immediately recall. I didn't even know where to even go to get the information. And that was the only, those were the only time periods where I remember not mentioning it immediately to others. But right away, after my diagnosis, this is really important for, for you to know, I didn't ever again deny my illness. I knew that there was a potential embarrassment about having a cognitive impairment because my mother covered for my father for years um, and whispered in his ear. And my father, you know, may have talked about it with me as memory problem, but with few others. Again, here's where, again, I forgot where I was going with my statement. I apologize. Oh. No, that's okay. You were just talking about different signs and you were talking about... about um that you always um, acknowledge that you have. Oh, yes, that's right. So then I went to my primary care physician, Dr. Tracy Helgren here in Tallahassee, who was spectacular, and I said to her that I'm having significant problem with my short and long-term memory, particularly my short-term at the time, and she acknowledged it. She validated it, acknowledged it, even though it was this invisible illness that I call, I, I... was so appreciative that she validated it and, you know, was ready to refer me to the other neurologist. I told her I'd see other neurologists, which I ended up seeing at both Mayo Clinic and uh, Dr. Angela Spencer here in Tallahassee, Florida, who's a neurologist. And through probably seven, eight hours of cognitive neuropsych testing, that I did not perform well on, when they asked me to draw a clock, for example, my wife, the early testing was sitting next to me, I couldn't draw the clock. I I didn't put the numbers in the right place. I didn't know how to write whatever hour and time of the day that they asked me to. And it went on to be worse and worse as I had my long testing after that point. Um, when I received the diagnosis there and at 
from Dr. Angela Spencer, who I saw probably about nine months or so, or a year, I don't know, after Mayo Clinic, she said that my symptoms were worse than what they said that they were at, at Mayo Clinic, and she immediately placed me on both Exelon and Namenda, uh, the patch, and Namenda, which I ended up dosing up on. Um, I'm now losing my train of thought a little bit as to the question that's you asked me. That's okay. Where I'm going with it. Yeah, that's okay. You were, we were just talking again about signs and your acknowledgement, and you know the doctor. You had gone through all the testing, and, right? Um, and the doctor was, uh, you know, agreeing that there definitely was a problem. Why don't we um, switch to a, a different? Well, well, I, well, I think about it. Let me throw you away. I I, I okay. want to make it perfectly really clear that from the get-go of my getting the diagnosis of my cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, I'd never once from that point forth, the guidance of Dr. Helgren and Dr. Spencer and others, I never denied my illness of having Alzheimer's to anybody in any conversation Prior to me even beginning the conversation with them, I was open about it. It was almost as if I was telling them that I had a back problem or a knee problem or that I had constant headaches or whatever it might be. I didn't treat it as being a medical problem that I had embarrassment over. My, I, I experienced my mom having going through years of whispering in my father's ear you know, say this, Leon, that was his name, say that. And I wasn't going to do the same thing, either for myself, and I refused to let my wife or my children do that for me. Yes, I had a cognitive problem, I had Alzheimer's, and I'm taking medications, and if I don't remember something or I forget where I am in a conversation, then... That's who I am right now, and I'm living a different but new life. Yep, yep. And I think that that's wonderful that you're embracing it in that fashion. Um, I would love to see more people um, feel comfortable and confident because, you know, none of us are perfect, and we all have different things going on in our lives, and, you know, it's it's okay. It's It's perfectly fine. Now, did your did your wife see different signs than what you were seeing? Well, she, yes, she did, Lori. Um, she saw a very disoriented person who, and she's not here now, um, but she would tell you that I would repeat myself all the time, and it was driving her crazy as a care partner, caregiver, and she didn't know what to do with herself. She was, I knew, I was totally unaware of this. She was ready to pull her hair out, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was distraught. And until I went on the medications, which were not difficult, but, you know, you dose up on them and you, you're dealing with the side effects, which I'm not, fortunately, not dealing with right now. I was one of... Whatever the combination medication of the Exelon and the, you know, the meta, whatever, it helped me 
the it brought me back. I was one of the the, the whatever percentage there are, and I, I forgot that showed perhaps empirically or whatever, and based on my wife saying some significant improvement. And it brought me back a couple of years in my life. I'm still unable to perform and write and do the things that I wanted or was doing, but it's um, easier for my wife to deal with me. Okay. Well, that's so, that, so you saw the medications did did help, which is wonderful. And, and the and encouragement of my physicians, both, who encouraged me to be proactive in the sense of volunteering. And I was fortunate enough, along with the other people on the uh, early stage advisory group, to be appointed. And I was sitting at home when both doctors were saying, get out there, Sandy, and volunteer. Someone who volunteered at so many things during his life, me, had no interest in getting out socially and engaging myself with other people. Uh, I didn't find any organization or thing until I received a call from Emily Schubeck and Monica Marino at the Alzheimer's Association that I had been accepted as an early stage advisor, and it gave me a new platform and a new... It gave me a purpose for this new chapter in my life that I was struggling with and coping with. And there was, I, you know, I, I said this over and over again to a lot of people, and I, it's a metaphor, uh, a proverb that I saw on a mug that said, just when the caterpillar thought his life was over, he became a butterfly. And metaphorically, I see myself as that butterfly living a new chapter of a life, different, harder, but living by the moment, I am dealing with it, and hopefully my family, and they do, understand what I'm going through. Well, and I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. It's uh, it's another stage of life, and, you know, with any stage of life, we can we have a choice to look at it positively or negatively, you know, and move forward, and you are really trying to um, kind of wrap your head and your heart around this disease and improve things for the next guy. Um, by, yes, and you're, you're by right. Cause it's not, it's, you're, Laura, you're right. It's, this, is, this is not about me. When I'm telling you all these stories about myself and Sandy Halpern, and, and it's true of all the other advisors that are out there in the, in the National Alzheimer's Association and the group, and it's not about us. It's about all the millions and you speak to all these people. What you do is 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 great. I mean, it's superior. We're we're this isn't about you know me personally. It's about all those five plus million people that are suffering. Those people that are suffering that don't even that are too embarrassed the stigma to go talk to their physician. And it's about all those millions and millions and millions of caregivers out there that are taking care of the people that are have the disease 
And that's about all I have to say about that because I don't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> well, you're making you're making great points, <clears throat> um, and and I totally agree. You know, there are people don't understand how far reaching this disease is because I, I personally believe this is not a disease of one. This is a disease of society, and the ripple effect is so huge because not only does it affect the person who's diagnosed, but their family, their friends. Um, their coworkers, their community at large, we're all tied into this together, and we have got to get a grip. And we've yes. got to all get more educated, be much more aware, um, stop being so judgmental, and we have to improve our services. Um, and that's all businesses, not just healthcare. And I think that's one of the, the biggest myths out there is people think, well, I'm not in healthcare, so I don't have to deal with this. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, and I think that that the, if I had to give one one of the most important messages to someone who might be listening who thinks that they have a cognitive impairment, and from what I've been told and have learned from a variety of folks at the National Alzheimer's Association and elsewhere, that one of the myths is that memory loss is not a normal process of aging um, I, I lost my my thought process yeah and it, it's not um, memory mm-hmm. loss can can um, not be uh, a normal yeah. uh, or Alzheimer's is not a normal piece of, of aging memory loss you know portions of it can be and it's like what is normal and what's not and when it becomes um, not normal anymore is when it really interferes with your your daily life. Like you at your job, all of a sudden you're finding you couldn't do your job the way you used to be able to do it. Or at home, not being able to perform tasks that you've always done, and and that might be using the checkbook, it might be driving the car, it might be knowing how to answer the phone, or or dealing with the TV, um, you know, engaging um, people. Not oh, that's right. That, and I just remembered, you just triggered my thought that I forgot. It's the stigma. I don't want anyone who's listening to not go for, to see their physician or a memory care clinic or their health care provider or psychologist, psychiatrist, to get a diagnosis as to why they've got uh, a short or long-term memory loss that don't let the stigma of the embarrassment of the disease stop them because so much what I my hope and the hope of many others with early stage uh, Alzheimer's is that there will be some curative research and then medications or therapies that can be done at the early stage to prevent it from progressing further. So for for someone to wait two to three years, I'm making that up, two to three years, before they go see their health care provider, and then once they get to see their health care provider, it can often be another time period before there's a diagnosis, treatment planning, and treatment for them. So the, the the longer they delay it, the longer they delay the potential for getting some treatment or treatments or guidance 
of what they should do with their lives at that point. Mm-hmm. Very, uh, very good point. Um, and again, it's about removing the fear. And you know, I, I talk with a lot of people who have been diagnosed, and and every single person I've ever talked to said, even though getting the diagnosis was scary, it was such a huge relief to know that there was something wrong because they thought they were kind of going crazy because they couldn't figure out why they didn't know <clears throat> what they what they used to know, why they couldn't do certain things. And, and that's, so, that's so true of people that approach the medical care provider, the physician with these invisible illnesses, whether it's a memory disorder or a, uh, a fatigue or, you know, uh, headaches, stomach aches, and they can't, the physician can't see them and to be validated for, you know, their illness early on can be so key because then they can know what to do about it and about their future life. And there and there is a lot of support out there um, through organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, the Alzheimer's Foundation, the Alzheimer's Society, um, businesses like myself, Alzheimer's Speaks. There are lots of different venues um, that people can tap into for support on all different levels. And and I think one of the, the scary things, I know when I was going through it, and I still am with my mom, of, this has been a 30-year journey for me, but um, I, I hated the word support. Um, I didn't want to go to a support group because it was like, oh, that's one more thing that I have to do. But I didn't realize the importance of those gatherings. And so even with our memory cafes, which are which is a social support gathering for people with memory loss and their care partners, um, I didn't realize how much I needed to be rejuvenated and with people that understood what I was going through. Um, in a safe environment. And, yeah, I can understand that. And that's just huge. That's huge. Um, yeah. I, now I'm going to flip uh, conversation here just to hear. In terms of your kids, did they notice any changes with you? Yeah, they did. They, they, they noticed similar things that my wife had noticed, and, you know, they had their communications about it. Uh uh, to some extent, when I have the diagnosis, it was more of a shock uh, to one of my daughters than the other it, because of the stigma of the uh, disease, and uh, or I shouldn't even really say that, the, the fear, her knowing that her grandfather uh, saw his demise over you know, 10, 15 years of memory loss, that it was harder for her to accept and to hear about it or to even for probably close to a year even mention it to mm-hmm. a friend. Uh, she couldn't she couldn't utter the words. Uh-huh. And and now, you know, through a lot of conversations and talking with me and other family members, she's out there as as much as anyone else in the family. But it took more time for her to to get to that point. To feel comfortable, yeah. To feel comfortable to talk about it, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and each person is different. I, I, you know, whoever they may be, 
where they're willing to share. I know that about we 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 move from we're still living independently, but we move from uh, our townhome to uh, a senior living facility where we're living in an apartment independently, and one of the we have meals our evening meals are over in a dining room and we sat down at a table with oh another six eight people and i had to tell them at the beginning of the conversation i i just felt that of my problem because i knew it was going to come up or they'd notice it during the conversation i didn't want to feel um What's the word? I don't want Gail to cover for me, my mm-hmm. wife, or I don't want to feel, um, what's the word, self, self-conscious. Self-conscious, yeah. I didn't want to feel self-conscious about it during my conversation because I knew that in an hour, hour and a half of my being there that I was going to forget some things. So it made it easier for me, and I felt more relaxed being open about it right from the get-go. Well, and I, I think that that's important. I know, you know, just watching my mom, she shut down. You know, she, she had really good social skills, and she knew when to partake in a conversation and when not to because she didn't want to forget um, and she didn't want to be embarrassed. And and I understand all those things. And as a family, what I realized, too, was that we were we were covering for her without even knowing that we were covering for her. And then we would get upset with people who didn't understand that she was having difficulty and would ask her to partake in things. And I remember one time I got really, I mean, I was really upset because my dad had brain cancer, my mom had Alzheimer's disease, and they had friends that wanted them to travel. And I was, and I, I got, I remember thinking to myself very angrily, going, "What is wrong with these people?" Why are they? Why are they putting this on the table? They can no more maneuver an airport. And then I sat back and I thought, because they don't know, Lori, because yeah. you are covering so well, and their social skills for both of them are wonderful that, that they can chime in and everything looks okay. They have no idea that you're helping them get dressed and you're making sure that they've got money with them and you know all of those timing things, making sure that they get where they need to go on time. They had no idea any of that was going on in the background. And as a family, we didn't really even acknowledge that we were, it wasn't that we were trying to consciously hide anything. We just kind of thought we were helping. Yeah. But, but didn't realize that we really do need to have these honest conversations so that so that others can help in their way too. Well, you know, you just brought up a thing that I want I, you know, I just wrote it down here on a piece of paper because all I've got in front of me is these blank pieces of paper here. That um, there's a physician that works at the he's the head of geriatrics at Florida State University. His name is Dr. Ken Brummel Smith. He came to my home and interviewed myself, my wife, and Karen, my daughter Karen, about pulsed. It's the Physicians orders physicians for life sustaining treatment. Is that correct, Lori? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he made it perfectly clear to me that it's time in my life because of my 
cognitive impairment to make sure that my will and my financial affairs and very importantly, even though POLST is not state law within the state of Florida, though it's state law within other states, that he already, without me knowing, the next day contacted my family care physician, Dr. Helgren, to speak to her about writing orders because in my discussion with him, my biggest fear about dying was that I wanted to be in physical and emotional comfort. And I wanted some physician there with me to be aware of that and not not let me suffer through my final demise. And it was a, you know, he taped the entire interview, mm-hmm. a videotaped it. Um, you know, and it was very hard. You know, I cried during a lot of it. It was hard for me to to get through in discussing my end of life wishes. And he did this through a very, you know, different technique of using a deck of playing cards and my priorities of what I'd like to see at the end of my life or who I want to be with me at the end of my life. <clears throat> but in the end, it comes down to having. If the emergency room, if an ambulance arrives in my home, they're going to see on my refrigerator and on my door and on, you know, they know they know through physician's orders what they need to do to keep me comfortable in whatever my orders are. For It's not just my orders or what my surrogate might feel, my surrogate of health. But my specific orders are there as if they are in a will, you know, Mm -hmm. is what I want to be done for me uh, towards my end of life. Yeah, it's a a great tool. In fact, um, again, it's physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And if you put into your Google search bar just P-O-L-S-T, um, various uh, sites will come up. California has one where they have the video. There's a PDF of the form. Um, different states um, have adopted this, so you can uh, you'll you'll find the information you're looking for. But very very good um, information and a nice way to um, you know just communicate with everybody what is important. Um, to you in in the rest of your journey, you know, in life. And I think it really helps alleviate any guilt or confusion that family members would have in terms of making decisions as well. Um, simple things even as to <clears throat> when, when might be the time um, for me to, you know, give up my driver's license, when, when might be the time um, that I have to move out of the house. Those are all things that can be addressed um, in in this as well. So it's it's definitely something to take a peek at. Now we do have a question um, from Harry, and he was wondering when you got diagnosed, did you ever um, have a sense of abandonment um, when you got diagnosed from family or friends? Did you feel a sense of abandonment? No, I. Because of the closeness of my family, I'm talking now about my wife and and two children and son-in-law, 
Um, I never felt a sense of abandonment of people saying, I, I'm not going to, to care for you. In fact, extended family members of brothers and rel- other relatives, cousins, uh, they were maybe to the opposite. How can I help you? How can I be there for you? Because I was open about it and proactive and verbal, that they were they showed up for me, uh, Harry. Yeah. I in the other sense, if I don't know the reason, maybe I don't think it's true. Uh, what's the word? I don't. I don't think it's unique to my family, but I think that to some extent the the fact that I was open about it and clear about it um maybe compelled them to respond uh and to at least verbally say that if you need help let me know I'll be there for you. Mhm. Um Harry's also wondering how about friends? Um did they avoid you or or did cuz a lot of people talk about how they you know family and friends kind of just melt away. And um, they they feel this overwhelming sense of sadness and and loneliness. Did did friends or coworkers pull away? Well, yes, a few. Okay. Without not, doubt. Mm-hmm. And but at the same sense, um, I socially stayed away from them. Um, I think it was, I'm not going to say it's 50-50, I don't even know the percentages. I didn't get out there socially, and my social interactions were limited. And at the same time, many of them out of sight, out of mind, you know, um, uh, very little reaction from some, whereas there were a very select few who went out of their ways to do stuff that was beyond my imagination. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I know some people say, well, you know, if you if you can't drive and if you can't get to the gatherings all the time, you know, that's kind of a normal way for things to, to slip away. Um, right, because my, my interest in driving and going places is one thing, and then two... I'm facing a situation where I've been given, I haven't been given yet, I've been given the phone number for the person to call to get the appropriate, this code goes through the, I don't know if it went through the local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, yes it did, to someone else who got me the name of the person that I should call to get the appropriate testing to see if I'm qualified to drive. Okay. And if I am to drive where I can drive, in other words, where I'm safe in driving, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about whether it be, I'm making up guesses here, I don't know, whether it's reaction time or do I turn right or do I turn left or, you know, how am I driving and, and what's my cognitive ability of reading and being distracted. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that if I'm in an accident that, they're not going to turn to me and say, "Well, you were, you had, you had Alzheimer's. You should not have been driving." 
I want to make sure that I, that if I'm driving, that it's not about me. It's about the safety of others that are on the road. Okay. I don't and want to appear, appear them. And that's that's a you know a nice way to look at it because I know there have been um, discussions about if you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's and you are driving, you know, and you get in an accident, how is the insurance company going to respond to that? And right. So, um, are they going to cover you, or is that something that you need to tell them? And then they're going to make the choice, and it's it's kind of iffy waters right now. Nobody really knows how all that works. <laughs> you know? um, but the yeah. But thing you want is to to be in that in that situation. So I think it's important for people to to understand that um, there are places you can go to get tested to verify one way or the other and that's a that's a nice discussion to have as a family saying Yeah, that's you know, true. And I, I'm afraid what was I gonna say I forgot. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, um sorry. it's just a nice discussion to have as yeah. a family to say, you know, when when you think this is an issue, you know, let's go get tested and, and some people are videotaping that so that they can see themselves, hear themselves say those words um, because, uh, you know, later as the disease progresses, sometimes people forget um, that they agreed to that. Um, others are signing little contracts with that. And, you know, it's it's hard to say what will stick in the memory or not in terms of those conversations, but it's worth a try. Well, it's interesting. I had to take my father's keys away from him because I was at an intersection with him. He's driving. He's in the, he was in familiar territory. Mm-hmm. He said, "Do I turn right or do I turn left?" And he was very confused. It was mm-hmm. it was over. His driving days were over. I took his keys. He cried and you know whatever. On the other side, let me flip the coin. When I tell my wife that I might you know I'm gonna that I would go for some a test to, and I'm not talking about a test at the at the Motor Vehicles Association. You know whatever they are, you know where they're going to have me do a three-point turn or something. The point is that my wife, I think, fears where I've been proactive and verbal. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the other side now. They fear what their life will be like as a caregiver when when Sandy can't go to Publix, let's say, I'm making this up, mm-hmm. on his own without me and get some groceries or when Sandy... He can't go to the physician himself. Yep. Yep. Yeah, because it, it, it affects, like you said, this disease affects more than just one person. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. really a lifestyle, and, um, you know, it's divvying up tasks and chores and events and all kinds of things that we... You're right. Yeah, the fact that I can't do... Uh, and I, when I say can't, I mean, I'm telling you I can't or I shouldn't because I make mistakes. I can't do the financial fears for my my wife. You know, I, I can't. I'll make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it's not right. You know, when you're, when you're dealing with, with that, it's not not right. And I've, and I've done that and I've made mistakes. I wrote a check the wrong way the other day. It was weird to write a check, but someone wanted, I had to write a check for 
for something and, you know, it was like, wrote it wrong. Um, How do you, when, um, were you in front of somebody as you were writing that check, Sandy? Yeah, I was. And how how did the person react when you wrote it wrong? Well, this person that I wrote it wrong knows that I've got Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and accepted it. And then, you know, went from that point. Okay. Okay. Because I think that, you know, those are the little simple things that businesses have to learn how to address. You know, if somebody is in their store and trying to make change and having a difficult time or, um, you know, appears to be lost in a parking lot or, or in an aisle in a store, um, how do you address those things? Um, you know, or ordering from a menu can be very overwhelming for people. How do you how do you do in a restaurant? Well, when I when I go, I'm okay because food food is one of my loves. Mm-hmm. That that I deal with that okay. You know, I I look at the menu and I when I'm in a restaurant because we don't. You know, we're not going out that often, but when I do, I'm okay because I, you know, I feel that I know what I want to eat at that time. So, with regards to ordering, I've been okay uh, at this point. Um, you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, do you typically? Review the menu and pick something, or do you have your favorites that you just well, I've, I've got my I've got my favorites, but there have been a few occasions where, uh, you know, I've looked at a menu before I've gotten there. I've gone online and looked at a menu. You know, I'm going to a strange restaurant. I've looked at it before I I I arrived there. Um, I want to go back to when I was writing the check. When I was writing it, I did not know whether I was writing it correctly or not. Okay. And when I finished writing the check, it didn't look right to me. Um, but the person said that it looked it was okay, it was fine. You know, it would get cashed. Mm-hmm. But it just didn't have the same appearance to me. And when I, I've also noticed that when I signed my name. It wasn't my signature looking. And do you follow? I, I, yep. I it was the concentration. Something was going on, and I signed my name to it. Mm-hmm. It just didn't look right to me. It didn't look like a check that, you know, talking about me that I would write. It looked strange. Mm-hmm. And I, I, again, I hadn't written a check for some, you know, let's say a couple months, two, three months. The only time I do is when someone service-wise comes into the house and I, you know, they, they want to check, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than my wife writing, doing her work online. But you know, the other thing that I got to tell you, Lori, after I wrote the check, I said, "Okay, Sandy, you should go write it in the register. You should write a note to your wife." But getting to a task and getting to do a function. And in my speaking with the other advisors in the early stage advisory group when I was in Chicago, I didn't realize that 
the experiences that they have, I have. And that the, the, about a, you mentioned a support group. I was astounded to learn that my inability to not just multitask, but get to a single task of go, Cindy, you got to go write down a quick note, and I couldn't do it or didn't want to do it, had no interest in doing it, and I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, is hard for me. If my wife says to me, Sandy, all she has to do is say, Sandy, can, and my 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 back goes up against the walls. Is like, okay, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do the task. But if I'm sitting quietly, and it comes to me independently, and one of the benefits of me volunteering to keep my brain going has been the Alzheimer's, uh, you know, the early stage advisory group, national and local chapter, and, you know, working with Margaret Ferris and Kay Reddington here, that, that they've kept me going here on a local basis. You know, I, I just pull, I, I just can get to the task individually with what I'm doing there, but it's slower. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've we've got another question, and then I'm going to come back to um, the whole advisory group because I I have some strong beliefs in terms of purpose and things. But one of the questions that's being posed is um, going back to ordering a meal in a restaurant. Um, Harry was wondering how you handle choices um, in terms of the menu because he said to him it just seems like the choices are endless I mean even just for a beverage you know we we rattle off eight things how do you like someone to give you choices do you have a preference Um, I like simplicity at this point when I'm given I think in in reference to the question, I'll respond differently in a restaurant than I will outside of a restaurant. If I'm given a lot of choices and a lot of things to consider outside of, because I think food is part of my being as my hobby. It was mm-hmm. it was sort of like in my emotional part of my brain. But when I'm given choices outside, I won't remember the first four choices, five choices until, you know, I remember, let's say, number seven, eight, nine, or six, seven, eight, or whatever. But I remember, I won't necessarily remember the beginning of, of, of the choices. So I can understand someone who's not into food may not remember the beginning. And then I have to, well, i got to be honest and say that if they're given eight choices in a restaurant, I may not remember the eight, eight things either. Mm-hmm. You know, if they give these specialties of the night, I'm not going to, you know, I can tell you right now, I probably won't remember. If they list five, I won't remember the first, you know, I won't remember two or three of them. Well, even when it comes to, you know, beverage, you know, they'll rattle off, I mean, a, a long list. And, and sometimes I think it's better for them to ask, you know, are you a coffee or tea drinker or do you prefer pop? or milk, you know, just those one or two choices. And then from there, if you like pop, it's like, do you like a cola? Or do you like, you know, because then you can give them the options of 
the Cokes, you know. Right. Um, do you like diet or regular? Because then they can hone it down instead of, and it, and it takes a few more questions, but what I found is, is um, people with dementia say it's easier for them to, to follow um, that line of questioning versus just we rattle off everything. I mean, even when I'm in a restaurant, you know, I'll ask, you know, what kind of dressing do you have? And it's like, holy crap, you know, I really got to pay attention here. <laughs> and yeah. I'm kind of half involved in a conversation, and and it just, it does, it gets overwhelming, um, I think, for everybody. But for somebody with dementia, it's it's just such a struggle. And, you know, there there are different ways to be able to disseminate the same information and um, and help people with that process. Um, now, someone else is asking, how does your memory struggles impact how you relate to your grandkids? Do you, do you feel that you're interacting different with your grandchildren at all, Sandy? Well, I, I feel close to my grandchildren um, it's to, to a large degree. I'll often confuse which one I'm speaking to or call one the other name uh, when it's the other. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I've been made aware of that I've got to be careful, if I get distracted, you know, if you distract me during the conversation or if I get physically distracted, when I was supposed to be watching both, I end up not watching both. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the original question was, but the, the the that has happened on many occasions where I should be watching both, and I'm either not watching either or watching one, mm-hmm. and the other's off doing whatever, where I should be taking care of them, particularly when I was at the pool. Okay. Well, and I've heard some people, um, you know, I've had all different types of um comments to that that question on, you know, how do you interact with with your grandchildren, you know, with your memory loss. And um, some have said once in a while they refer to their grandchildren as their children, um, remembering them at a younger age. Um, Others say that they just play um, play very intensely with them and, um, you know, really just join them in terms of playful activities. And I know my mom was one of those where she just, um, you know, I don't know who was coloring more intently, my daughter or her, and both were very proud of what they were doing. It was so neat to watch um, because they just had this fabulous interaction and connection um, when they were just coloring together. Just really, really something. So I think depending on you know, the relationships that you have to start with and then where you are in the progression of the disease. Um, and then personalities, of course, are always going to come into play. And, and then the task at hand, if you're, you know, watching them by the pool or if you're playing in a playground or if you're in the safety of your own living room, you know, all of those things will, I would think, would have a different impact on outcomes. Right, and the, the 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 analysis came from my daughter and from my wife who noticed uh, me with them on many occasions that I cannot take care of them alone. 
Mm-hmm. I, it's not safe for them. I mm-hmm. mean, should one go off? I mean, a pool is a very severe example, but I mean, they could be in the house and go off, and it's two-year-old, you know, whatever. So, you know, I, I've got to be, I've got to be careful. Uh, and should I? One of my joys would be to go pick one up, the three-year-old who can get in and out of the car seat, and go go over and have a little treat at Panera. But I shouldn't do, you know, if I'm not going to be attentive, then that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's not within the realm of where I want to be responsible. Because mm-hmm. um, it, 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 what's been described to me, and you, maybe you know better, you go through lapses where you're clear, then boom, zoom, gone, and then back. You're distracted, you're missing and then you're back, and it's during those gaps that it could happen. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the the things that I think people struggle about, one of the misnomers is, you know, people ask, well, where are you in the disease? And and people ebb and they flow um, from moment to moment in terms of their cognitive abilities. Well, you you brought up a good point. Don't mind interrupt if I interrupt you. If I do... Most people think of the Alzheimer's patient as sitting in a nursing home in a wheelchair, looking at the walls, not knowing where they are. And, you know, this is, I'm not saying everybody, but that's the conception of when someone thinks of Alzheimer's. They don't Mm -hmm. think of necessarily me sitting around with the other nine advisors for the early stage advisory group having what, what, some may consider a nor- would be a normal conversation, and um, well, this is where I just lost where I was going. Where the question, what I started to say. Um, oh, you were. We were just talking so, about how it ebbs and flows the disease, yeah. and uh, and people think that you know someone just sits in a wheelchair. Oh yeah, it. right. So when they look at someone that has early stage, they they don't think when 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 me, along with the other advisors, some of them, um, were, when we're in Washington for the National Alzheimer's Association Advocacy Week in April, when we're sitting with people from Congress or member, members of Congress, members of the Senate, they're looking at someone with early stage. They don't necessarily think of someone with early stage. <clears throat> what might be in their mind is, well, we should be wheeled in in a wheelchair not knowing that we're meeting with a senator mm-hmm. and, and what have you. But with, with early stage, this is the – it starts somewhere The where, where diabetes starts somewhere. Someone has degenerative back problems starts somewhere. Someone, you know, with a variety of chronic illnesses, heart disease starts with nothing and it ends up with severe plaques or cal- calcifications. <clears throat> they, they, bringing that understanding to them, that it starts at this early stage and the research that can be done at this early stage, you mm-hmm. know, that, that could be curative in the prevention and the prevention side and the, in the early phase side. And, and, and these are, this is where the dollars, what I've called this war on Alzheimer's, my own name I came up with, not that it's unique or different than war on cancer, but it's a war on Alzheimer's to increase the, 
funding, which the Alzheimer's Association wants, increased funding for for our curative research. Mm-hmm. And, and I think curative research is um, definitely something that we need to look at, but I know that there's also a huge need for support for people living with the disease today because the cure is out. Um, so that's just something that I hear all the time, that there's got to be a balance. Um, now we do have another question. Um, this person is asking, I've heard about personality changes that people sometimes face with Alzheimer's. Has that happened to you? Have you noticed any personality changes with yourself? Yeah, I've noticed um, where I was a multitasker. When I say multitasker, I task to the world. I, it's it's difficult when I'm told to do the one task I can't do or don't want to do. Uh, where I was a cook, uh, it was my hobby. If someone said, well, go make a meal, I have no interest in that. That has been a change, a personal change in my behavior uh, where I would be social and go out on a natural basis. I don't. Uh, it's not that I'm antisocial. It's just that the the energy is not there for me or the motivation to go do so uh, isn't the same as it was. So those are... I may also have a little shortness, um, uh, be more abrupt, sadly, to my caregivers, my spouse, where I may be shorter in my, I'm not going to say it's a temper because we don't argue, but I may be shorter or shorter fuse than what I normally would, which brings... It's sad for me to see, but that's a personality change. Sure. Now, some people talk about um, kind of this, how do I want to put it, where their emotions are kind of flattened, they're detached a little bit more. Um, Have you felt a sense of that where you might make a comment and you have no idea that it might offend somebody? Um, because it just you didn't attach any emotion to it. Um, I tend to be a pretty emotional person, and like when I'm speaking with you, if it's in my heart, it will come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess I am a little bit like you say flattened. Um, I sort of like, I've been there, I've done that, I, I'm not as tolerant over, you know, going to Seinfeld, yada, 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 where, you know, there may be longer discussions, which I can't pay attention to, um, and I'll just, I forgot the question. And I forgot where I was going. Oh, that that's okay. We're just talking about uh, different avenues, and um, did your emotions kind of flatten out? Oh, yeah, the emotions. Yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so my emotions have flattened when I when I hear certain things that I've been through. I'll be more emotionless or flat on some of those things. I never really thought about it, but I am. I, I don't get as excited or, you know, I won't go into the back <clears throat> where excitable corporate mode that I may have been in, I'll be more flattened in my feelings. Okay. Okay. Now it looks like we've got a caller, so I'm going to go ahead and pull them in. So we'll see what they have to say. Let's see. We've got a caller from a 215 number. You're live on the air. If you'd like to state your name and pose your question or comment. Are you with us from a 215? Oh, they hung up. Okay, well, I guess not. Maybe they were just calling in and listening in that mode, which is totally fine. So um, the other thing um, that was asked was, have you noticed a change in your sense of humor at all? Um, no. Uh, I may be a little bit more... spontaneous or not necessarily think about what I might say. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, my emotional side, my intuitive side, my emotional side, my feeling side is, appears to be from my emotional feeling well intact. So I would feel that my humor is still there. Um, I have to, though, I must say that when my wife says, watch this show, watch that show, uh, television, sitcoms, comedy, humor, I I will decide, no, I don't want to watch it because I don't find it funny, where maybe I would have been more willing to listen or partake. I don't have the patience or I, I don't remember. I mean, I'll watch a movie. And the next morning I'll wake up, I wouldn't even know what movie I watched, Mm -hmm. literally. Well, and I think that that is pretty common. One of the things that I hear with TV is that people find it very difficult to track. And so they will sit and watch the show or appear to be watching the show, but they say they're not tracking it. That's interesting, yeah. And so they'll, they'll sit there because they know their spouse or their friend enjoys it. And they want to be part of that because that's a routine that they used to have. But they're not getting the same thing out of it. Um, it's really just being close to that person and enjoying That's interesting because that's what I'm feeling. That That's what will happen mm-hmm. through a variety of shows. I'll sit there and I won't remember even the beginning. And then there will be a break because my daughter, let's say one of my daughters will call and we'll put the show on pause. We'll go back to the show. I won't remember what the, even the show we were watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and interesting. I think, I think yeah, that's, that's very, true. Very common. I know for my mom too. She um, she got to the point where certain shows were real to her, and so she couldn't tell the difference between you know what was reality in her living room and what was a TV program. And so when she was in the nursing home, 
um, they actually she she really believed that the the um, TV show Jag was real, and she would quiz people on what Whoa. was going on, and because um, for whatever reason she could remember that, and um, they started assigning one staff um, every week um, volunteered to watch Jag and then record what was what was going on in her chart. So because my mom would get furious if people didn't know what was going on politically with their government and stuff. And so that helped keep her calm. Um, well, just, just like if there was uh, something on the news where uh, when we went to war and all the bombing, she she thought that was happening right outside her, her window. And she was just terrified. So I think we have to be very conscious in terms of watching for the signs of how someone is reacting um, to their environment. And if that's a TV show, if it's radio, if it's uh, people within their environment, I, you know, I don't care. But we have to look for the signs because there's a reason they're acting the way they're acting. And a lot it, of it. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Jane, well, ahead. That's, yeah, that's about my, my friend, very close friend, bought me a, a tape. Um, I forgot the author. Killing Lincoln. And... I haven't yet listened, and it'd be easy for me to listen and pop it into the CD player I've got right next to me right here. But it's sort of like I don't have – it's another task. That's number one. Number two, I don't think I'll remember after I do listen, but maybe pleasurable listening. But there's something stopping me. I don't know what it is. It's just – and ordinarily I would have done it. We would have done it months ago. It's just it's just weird. I, I I I but it's true of many things in my life. I guess that it's a pattern. Mhm. And and patterns are very helpful for all of us. The the other thing, um, and Harry Urban was one who had mentioned this uh, in one of the dementia chats we we did. Um, people always think that a person with dementia has to be kept busy. And um, one of my favorite things Harry said was. You know, I used to like to relax before I got dementia, and I still do. So sitting and looking at the flowers or just breathing in the summer air or listening to some music is okay for me to do because it it brings him peace. And so I think that that's another really simple and smart way um, to really look at caring for somebody is what brings them peace and calm and happiness? Well, that's interesting. You mentioned music. When I'm walking in the pool doing physical therapy, just walking up and down the pool, and it's a warm pool indoors, and I have a headset on, and my daughter purchased me a little MP3 player that's waterproof. When I'm listening to the music, different thoughts will come to my mind, and it's good. And they're they're pleasurable thoughts. Afterwards, I say, "Well, I got to remember this. I got to remember that. I got to remember." I don't remember them, but it was good for the time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it brought me peace. Yeah, and it's about being in the moment. Yeah. Um, and and that's I I think that's personally I think that's one of the gifts that dementia gives us is teaching us to um, live in the moment and accept the moments. You know, and they don't have to be these huge, big, fancy, flashy things. They can be really simple, joyous, 
things that give us peace um, that are so much more valuable in my my mind than you know uh, some expensive gift or you know some big foo fooey thing. Yeah, um, there's a, there's a book that was written by uh, Dr. Spencer Johnson. It's called the. It's a very small book. It's called the Precious Present, P R E S E N T, mm-hmm. and it's about living in the moment, just like you say, and as I go through each day and I think of myself as that butterfly flying around, I'm on the right now I'm on the phone with you. Mm-hmm. And whoever else is listening, they're listening. But I'm having a conversation with you and that's that's where I am right now. I'm not I'm not sitting out, not driving around, I'm not sitting at a restaurant. And all I can be is with you and that's where I want to be. It's the precious present. It's in this moment. It's now, and it's real, and I can be here. Mm-hmm. And what's what's in my past is my past. What's going to happen later today will happen. But now I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's all good. Yep. Right. Yep. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Now, there's, a, there's a, another question that I wanted to ask you, um, Sandy, and that was, have you ever personally experienced any stigmas as a result of your disease, if it's with family or friends or at work, um, out in the public, but have you ever um, experienced any any stigma? No, I I personally, you know, I, nothing comes to mind where I can say yes. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you if there were, because I've been open about it and been upfront about it. If those that react and they're negative, that's about them, not about me. And maybe because I've been active in going out there and being proactive at the suggestion of my physicians and working with the Alzheimer's Association and understanding stigma, that that the the, the stigma may be more about them. It's more about them than about me if they've got the stigma of it. So I just want to live my life in the present, like you say, and if they've got a stigma about it, let them have, that's their problem, not my problem. And I, I just want to live my life and go forward. And if they choose not to be with me or selectively be with me or whatever the case may be, that's their choice. And I can't do anything about that to change them. Um, you know, I, I have enough right now to worry about myself and my family and close friends and you know and, and just deal with that then worry whether someone's gonna want to come over and visit with me or go to the movies or do whatever with me because I've got Alzheimer's mm-hmm. so well, I think that's a great attitude to to let go of that control and know the only thing you can control is yourself you can't change how someone else is going to react, and then um, just moving forward. Either they want to join you or they don't, and, and letting it go. And, and that's not always an easy thing to do for any of us. Right. And there's, I'm so, look, I have to be honest with you. Look, if I were to think about it, and or, I, there are certainly people out there that have maybe turned a shoulder or turned the other way because of my my problem, whatever. But if that's the case, I don't. 
cognitively know about it, think about it, or worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all. I, I I let it be what it is, and if if it's there, I may not know about it, and um, that's okay. I'm I'm at peace. Good. That's good. Now, um, what made you decide to um, um, become an advocate? Well, what what first of all, my physicians, Dr. Helgren and Dr. Spencer, they really were so strong in telling me, Sandy, get out there and volunteer. And during the time after I was diagnosed, I was on the phone all the time with uh, Elizabeth Wheeler at the Alzheimer's Association talking to her about the the trial match program and we're talking and talking and I whatever got to know her she got to her she got to know me and both and she recommended me to the early stage advisory group folks who then interviewed me and fortunately along with the others were selected as some of 10 from around the country that they had interviewed, and that gave me the opportunity to uh, have a voice and go speak and be an advocate about it. And I hope in my heart that I, I, I will continue on as long as I'm able and physically able, and mentally and physically able, that I will strongly advocate uh, on behalf of Alzheimer's uh, for awareness and stigma and funding and all the other aspects that you've brought up. Wonderful. Now, I, I think it's um, I think it's really important for people to understand how critical um, it is. I think for people in life in general to have purpose, but especially with dementia, I see such a, a huge shift in in what people are able to do once they have purpose in terms of raising awareness and helping others with this disease. The level of engagement um, is just it's unbelievable the changes I think that can take place and the knowledge base that you all have is um, is so important and is, is changing lives um, right and left out there. So first I want to thank you for being an advocate and, and stepping up um, and helping not only people like myself um, who are caring for someone or who are advocating for the disease, but for those who, you know, are worried that they might have memory problems or maybe have been diagnosed as well. Um, Harry is saying you must stand up and speak out for those who cannot. Um, and Harry Urban, like Rick Felt, <clears throat> Dina Dotson, um, Steve Kanyas uh, are just wonderful, wonderful advocates. Um, Michael uh, um, Ellen Vaughan is also, you know, on your advisory um, committee, I believe, as well along with Kay Fox, um, your voices are so strong and so beneficial and are are really changing the way people deal with this disease um, and helping remove the fear that's so, so wrapped in it, 
Mm-hmm. And that, that's what's been so strong about this early stage, you know, uh, advisory group and the other members, that they're such strong advocates. They all have, each one of us, have our own stories and our own symptoms and uh, variety of things that are, we've, and they've all been out there open and sharing. And, and that's been wonderful because it, I think it's given, at least me and I think the others, a sense of purpose. Because without it, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. I don't know what my condition would be because my physician says without my volunteering, I would be on a more significant decline. Mm-hmm. And I think that my family would probably note that. And this has been good for me. And being on the phone with you right now is good for me. It's all what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. that's good. It, it, it's. Are Are you familiar with Richard Taylor at all, Doctor Richard no. Taylor? No. No. Okay, and he he's been a major advocate for for years as well, and has a great newsletter, and he's doing some some webinars as well, <clears throat> engaging people um, somewhat similar to the dementia chats, um, except they're doing uh, they're pulling in some experts as well, and with the dementia chats, we're just focusing on people that that have dementia being our being our experts there. So I think it's just very critical um again for your for all of us to provide platforms for you to to speak on if it's a radio show, if it's a blog, if it's a webinar, if it's live, um if it's one-on-one, you know, in a support group or a memory cafe um, it makes no difference. It's just about having these these honest conversations that are are so so important um, for all of us to learn from one another, knowing that none of us have all the answers. Um, but the more That's we can right. understand, the more we can hear from a variety of voices, the better off we'll all be. Um, you're right. You're right, Lori. And there's so many. What I've learned on you know through speaking to groups and support groups and Facebook and LinkedIn and you and on a lot of people. There's so many little, there's so many microcosms of groups around the country and world that are involved with, you know, this disease process and the microcosms of people that are not involved, but they, they can influence and talk to them about it whether it's one-on-one or whether it's one to, you know, thousands uh, mm-hmm. or millions in different media. And, you know, yes, it's all important, like you say. Yep, very, very, very important, um, important stuff. Now, I know you're going to be going out to, what is it, California, I think, in April. You've got, um, I think it's April 13th. You're going to be out in Los Angeles. Yes. Or an early memory loss forum, which yes. is pretty exciting. Yes, and, that, that is exciting. And it will be exciting for me to speak with others who've got early stage and hear what they've got to say. And then after I, I, I will speak, there's going to be a variety of forums and, and, and uh, educational symposiums that, that I can participate in and learn more myself about things that might be a benefit to myself and, then expose others to it and help others. So, mm-hmm. so I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it is exciting things, and it, it's uh, uh, one of one of the things I wanted to mention that I just wrote down also on this piece of paper, the, the pulse. When I finished my interview with Dr. Bummel Smith, and it was several hours, and the crying and fears and about my death and uncertain future. Uh, I suddenly the fear that I had of death of my demise the final weeks or month or weeks or days or hours or whatever suddenly not suddenly but they, they sort of uh, vanished that I felt that if the orders you know, this is only the, the orders are followed from the time that healthcare providers are in my physical you know presence mm-hmm. that I'll be taken care of without having you know the discomforts of the final time and the pulse gave me that sense of feeling and that again comes back to I guess being proactive, speaking out, not feeling the stigma and being willing to talk about these things which has made it easier for me to do a final will and financial planning and post and surrogates and I don't know, some of this other I don't know, it was hard for me to get to do some of this stuff, but I think it, I'm not sure, but I think it's primarily over. I'm not, I think there's a few things left to be done, but it, it, I feel better about the final times because of Pulse and the guidance that, that this, the, the Dr. Will Smith has, has provided to me with my primary care physician involved. Well, that's great. That's uh, because anything that that helps you, you know, feel calm and in control. Even though, like you said, it was an emotional process to go through. These are important conversations that need to be that need to be had, um, and we need to process them. And you know, those um, all the emotions we have. You know, they're not good. They're not bad. They just are. Um, but we have to we have to work our way through them. And, right, and um, the, the people that are listening that, that might be in the early stages or the people that I speak to in the audience that or, or, or friends that might be in the early stages can't be afraid of the stigma, this embarrassment, and go beyond that and, and, and speak out to their primary care or their close family and friends and at least do something in the earlier stages if it is something that's related mm-hmm. to Alzheimer's. Uh, or one of the forms of dementia to to get at it and get some early treatment, whether it be exercise and diet and medications or whatever it might be in terms of care to to do it. But this, you know, when I'm out there speaking with groups or I'm on this show with you, it's to talk about this aspect of obviously awareness of the disease, but the stigma the people would feel the delays they're getting to their primary care or memory center or I've said it over maybe repetitive but 
again, yeah, that's been a real focus of my life in addition to doing what I can do to help with the major efforts of the Alzheimer's Association and other groups, as you mentioned, in getting funding for those that have the disease and caregivers and research and whatever, you know, all the all the monies that are needed. Yep. Now, I know that um, the Alzheimer's Association, you're... Um, I mean, you're one of their national advisors and stuff. Do you want to highlight um, anything in particular that that uh, that they have to offer that you think would be useful? Well, I, I think that the, the the one thing is that I know that they're looking for some additional early stage advisors for next year. And that if you go onto their website, uh I think it's ALZ, www.alz.org. There's a section on there for uh, an application for early stage advisory group. And those that might be interested in next year being in one of the early stage advisors can submit an application. So that I would, it's changed my life mm-hmm. and maybe the lives of others that are serving this year and other years, uh, most likely. Uh, that I would encourage them to do so. So that's that's one thing, is the early stage ESAG, as it's referred to, uh, strongly recommended in working with with Emily Schubeck and Monica Marino, who's the head of the group. Uh, Strongly recommend that. Uh, The other thing is the trial match program. Those that are interested in uh, uh, clinical trials around the country, the www.alz.org has the trial match program and that is something that is extraordinary because if they're looking for potential research studies that they may fit into in their minds or their physicians minds that it may be something that they may want to do and the other thing that's so important and I've used this is they've got a 24-7 hotline so any questions at any time at any hour of the day you know, I'm confused, I'm disoriented, I've gotten lost, you know, driving or whatever, that they can call and get advice. What should I do? I'm stuck. I have a problem. I'm not feeling well. Whatever the case might be, what advice? Now, they may say go to the emergency room or do this or that or whatever, but at least they've got this 24-7 support line. In addition to, on their website and other sources, uh, is voluminous. And this this is in addition to many of the other local chapters and of the National Association, as well as other Alzheimer's groups and, 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 and societies, organizations, and foundations that you've mentioned that, that might be of any benefit to them. But I... I strongly recommend, at least in my association with the Alzheimer's Association, National Alzheimer's Association, has been uh, one that has changed my life. In fact, it was so strange that after I was accepted into the uh, National Alzheimer's Group, I was up taking a shower, and my wife knocked on the shower door and she said, someone is here from the National Alzheimer's Association. I thought she was joking. 
And sure enough, I go downstairs, and there's Margaret Ferris here from the local chapter of the National Alzheimer's Association welcoming me as an early-stage advisor. And it was like, wow, you know, so they, they, they really mean business. And, you know, from that time forward and working with her and local chapter, and it's been wonderful. Well, that, that's great. So the the um, 24-7 helpline um, at the Alzheimer's Association is 1-800-272-3900. Again, that's 1-800-272-3900. Um, they also have um, the All, All's Connected, ALZ Connected, and that is you know, powered again by the Alzheimer's Association, and that's one of the first social networking communities designed for people living with Alzheimer's and their caregivers. And so that is something, again, that's up 24-7 and that users can tap into. And that's Yes, and I might add, Lori, that's, just, that's been very beneficial for a lot of people. For example, if they're starting a new medication, and whatever it might be, there may be others that are taking it that it may have similar side effects or not, or give advice. Not that it, that you know there takes over from what their healthcare provider may recommend, which they should seek, as far as my opinion is concerned. But still, they can hear what other experiences have been mm-hmm. and uh, of, of benefit. Yep, um, and then the Alzheimer's uh, Navigator which, again, um, is free, and it's a, it's a tool that can help people, um, caregivers and people with dementia, evaluate their needs and identify action steps. And, you know, they can always contact, of course, their, their local organization and going to www.alz.org um, is another way to, to go ahead and, um, you know, just peruse the website, there's all kinds of, of great information out there. Is there any tip or anything that you want to um, pose anybody um, as we wrap up the show here? Well, the, the the one major thing besides all of the other stuff that we've talked about, we've, we've tapped on it, is, is the need for curative funding. It's not in my mind to take away from any funding that the national government is giving to other major diseases such as HIV or heart disease or cancer or, you know, some of these get billions of dollars a year. And we're Alzheimer's is struggling to get, you know, uh, it's, you know, millions. Nominal. Nominal, in percentage-wise, nominal compared to the billions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're talking about, you know, some hundreds of millions, but in the billions now, you know, maybe bringing it to a couple billion dollars, is, um, I'm speaking out of term, but looking for something to, to entice the researchers around the country where they go where the money is. And when you're suffering, the way I am and the other early stage people, advisors and elsewise, you want curative research. You want something it's not all about me. It's not about me. It's about the others and millions of others 
that are in the early stages, and it's not, again, the nursing home. It's really putting the funding in as to what might help those that have the disease on the curative side, or if it's not curative, something that will delay it even further, you know, where the process doesn't accelerate at the rate that it is. So that's a message that's so important that uh, is gotten by national media, by leaders in our country, from the president to members of Congress and the Senate, that the need for uh, research is paramount. Uh, And that's why I've called it this war on Alzheimer's. It's time that the awareness is there, that the funding is made available for this horrible disease to live with, even at the early stages. Uh, It changes your life. And I can only imagine, they don't know where I'm going to progress or the speed at which, but there I am in the present and, you know, I'll, I'll live here as long as I can be in this state without going further, you know, Mm -hmm. hopefully with curative research on the way. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, you know, another um, resource that I always throw out for people too is Alzheimer's disease international, because we do have an international audience. And so, um, you can um, go to that site to get uh, find an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, and that's www.alv.co.uk. And um, there they have all kinds of um, global reports, um, and they've got an international um, conference of ADI, which is coming up here in April which is going to be, and I think it's China this year. So um, all different types of resources out there. And, again, I would like um, people to um, go visit us at alzheimerspeaks.com as well. There you can have um, access to all of our different platforms and learn more from our uh, blog, the radio, the YouTube channel, um, the webinar platforms, or if you're looking for um, a speaker or trainer as well, we can help you out. With that, um, well, I'm so happy you mentioned international because I know that the National Alzheimer's Association has a national international symposium every year. I know this year in July it's coming up in Boston, and they have researchers from around the world. Well, a lot of people, you know, living in the United States, may think of this as being a United States. I'm making this up, but United States disease. But this is uh, a worldwide tsunami epidemic and you know tsunami comes from someone else has used that term i don't know mm-hmm. what, what association but the point is it's growing at such a tremendous rate that you know i've written down here by 2050 the the disease there may be there's five million hours or plus there may be 13 15 16 million uh by that time and, you know, Medicaid and Medicare can only take care of so much, and it can bankrupt a lot of our health care system as, as, as we know it, forgetting what your philosophy is on 
health care, Republican, Democrat, whatever. We're talking about real fact figures of dollars that, mm-hmm. that this disease is costing us currently and in the coming years. It's devastating. And it's an international disease. So to those that think of it as just, well, we're living in the United States, no, it's it's around the world. And yeah. the more that you're on, you know, as you are, Lori, and speaking with people around the world and the Alzheimer's Association for sure, they, they, they know it's international. And the research that comes out of, say, the U.K., as you mentioned, can be as significant as some of the research coming out of one of the major universities in this country. So mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's it's something that I hope that without medical bickering and politicking and whatever that the the globe works together to combat this deadly devastating horrible disease to live with. Yeah, and there's uh so many commonalities. Uh, when I talk with people around the world, you know, people think everybody is so different, but the commonalities are, are I mean, they just slap you in the face. Everybody's kind of struggling with the same things. There is a, um, a new report, the World Alzheimer's Re- um, Report of 2011, um, which is just a really interesting report, and you can either read the whole thing or you can get the executive summary that's, you know, chopped down to like 36 pages, but um, just amazing the the statistics and the information and the movements that are happening all around the world, and, you know, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, collaboration is is so important and that we can make so much, um, much faster progress if we work together instead of everybody trying to recreate the wheel. That's for sure. When I I was working at at Harvard and then teaching there, uh, it was so secretive among some researchers as to the project they were working on that they were in competition with the next researchers so they would be the one that got the fame for coming out with their cure or their whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope that with Alzheimer's, you know, and, and with the National Alzheimer's International Meeting and people sharing not just the results of their pilots or their studies that have come out, but, you know, to share in some potentials for future is yeah. important. And, again, we know that there's private drug companies from the Pfizer's to the Bristol-Myers or whatever, these different companies that, you know, obviously they've got their private research ongoing and some of that's proprietary. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, you know, as they're doing their clinical trials, I mean, mm-hmm. who knows what cooperative research can be done among companies. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that territory, and I'm, I'm not going to go there because I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah, and I just caught myself making a mistake. I referred to the Alzheimer's, the World Alzheimer's Report is 2011, and actually it's the 2012 report out um, that people can find. Uh, they do one every year, but it's uh, fantastic information. And I just uh, realized I looked up on that. So I, I can't thank you enough, Sandy, for taking all the time that you did with us today. I'm going to go ahead and um, I'll pose one more um, comment uh, out to our audience and say if you've got a question or a comment that you'd like to um uh, 
opposed to Sandy, now is the time to do it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of start the wrap-up, but if something pops in, I'll, we'll go ahead and field that, that question or comment. I do want to remind people that we have another Dementia Chats coming up on March 12th, and again, that is a free webinar platform that I provide, and you can, you know, if you follow us on um, Facebook, uh, you can go to Dementia Chats or Alzheimer Speaks, or you can go to my personal webpage, um, or if you want to just go to www.alzheimerspeaks.com, um, I always note things on Twitter and the blog there as well. But that's typically at um, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central Time, and um, noon Pacific Time, depending on where you are in the in the U.S. And again, uh, those will all be recorded, so people can watch those later. And if you're out of the country, you're still more than welcome to participate. In fact, one of the things I'm um, coordinating right now is getting, uh, trying to coordinate time zones with people around the world so we can hear voices of um, not just people in the U.S. Um, who have been diagnosed with the disease, but others as well. On the 12th on the radio show, I'm going to have Dr. Richard Isaacson, and he's going to talk about his uh, book, Food for Thought. Um, nutrition and Medical Foods, and so that'll be a real interesting conversation. On the 26th, I have, I'm going to be thrilled to have Gary uh, Glazner with us on Arts and Poetry. And then on the 29th, at the very end of the month, we're going to have Us Against Alzheimer's um, on, and they're going to be talking about their movement. So, again, I want to thank everybody for spending so much time with us today. Um, really appreciate it. If you liked the show, um, I would encourage you to like us on Facebook. Um, you can go to the um, right here on Blonde Talk. You can you can like us or tweet us or share this episode with your friends from this page. But if you wouldn't mind going to Alzheimer's Speaks on Facebook as well, we would love you to follow us there um, so that you can be <clears throat> kept in the loop in terms of all of our different movements. So have a blessed day. I'm going to uh, wrap this up. We'll, we'll push out the recorded one, and then I think I'm off to shoveling myself out here in Minnesota. Okay, so, well, here in Florida, we won't have that snow. I'm just joking. You're, you're lucky. <laughs> We've got a good foot yeah. out there. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, thank yeah. you, Lori. I appreciate all that you do for Alzheimer's disease and all that you contribute around the world. So. You, you've, uh, you're a real champion. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. Well, you have a great day, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You be well. well. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.